I'm up here playing with my computer, so you guys can still talk. That's the wrong one. Hey, that's where I want it to be. Okay. Where'd I go now? There we are. <laughs> My apologies for these technical difficulties. I'm not very good at this kind of stuff. That's why I've depended on Chuck for many years in my office to solve these kind of problems. I'm going to miss him a lot. I often wondered when Jason asked me to speak, what was his criteria for saying that this was a good sermon for Ron? And... Um, I started trying to look for a theme. And at first I thought it was, uh, he liked to give me controversial pieces so that I would always have the difficult things to say. And so all the stones would be thrown at me instead of him. But I noticed that Jason took on a few conf- confrontational pieces himself. So then I th- noticed that it seems to always be about Jews. I'm not sure why. Maybe because my mother was Jewish. Whenever he sees something in the scriptures about Judaism, he likes to let Ron take that one. But either way, I find it an honor to stand in this pulpit and break the word to you. So we're going to study Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. In the bulletin it says, uh, what's the title? Hell no. Yeah, I changed it. I didn't like that one. Oracles of God. How is that working out for you? And so um, we want to... Read the scriptures together. I find this is an exceptional blessing too, because the last time I had the honor to stand in this pulpit, I had to get Tim to read for me, Tim Johnson, because I couldn't see. Uh, I can read my own words today. Praise the Lord. Therefore, what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the value of circumcision? Actually, there are many advantages. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then, if some did not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. Let God be proven true and every human being shown up as a liar, just as it is written, so that you will be justified in your words and will prevail when you are judged. It begs the question, this passage of Scripture. The first part states that You know, there's this key advantage of being circumcised is that God trusted us with the oracles of God. And then the second part seems to be making an excuse for this trust being no advantage at all. If you look at the history uh, of the of the of Jewish people, you find that it doesn't look like things worked out very well for them. Somewhere between the end of verse two and the beginning of verse three, there is a disconnect. Uh, Why didn't this work out? Uh, to being an advantage to the circumcised. Well, let's explore that a little bit. First, we need to understand what are the oracles of God. And there are several scholarly papers out there as to what they think this is. A small group of them think it's only the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, which is the only part of the law that is supposed to apply to the nations as well. Some say it's the Torah. Others say it's the Old Testament. And then there's still some uh, New Testament scholars who think it's the entire Bible. Based on Jesus' clarification of what this passage means, I seem to land on number three, that it's talking about the entire Old Testament. But but some some others have a different opinion. But quite frankly, it doesn't matter. 
Each one of them has the exact same implication, whether it would be any of the four. When you read into it and learn the lessons that we need to learn about what it means to uh, live under the law, it doesn't matter which one or version you decide to pick. So let's look at what it was like. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord our God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. Let me set this verse up for you a little bit. The Israelites were about to cross the Jordan and go into the land and conquer the land. And one of the things that the Lord wanted them to do before they did this was to pledge allegiance to the Lord's um, commandments. And what they did is they got in this valley and half of uh, of the nation of Israel stood on one side of the mountain and half of the nation of Israel stood on the other side of the mountain And one half read all the blessings and the other half read all the cursings. And when they were all done, they said, Amen. We agree. And so when they were uh, looking at this, they were seeing that the, the word of God is a gift, but it's also a blessing and a curse. And you had to be very careful how you handled it as to which one it might be. So how did that work out for them? Uh, did they get the blessings or did they get the curses? Anybody want to yell out? All of the above. Yes, in some regards they did get all of the above. But for the most part they were under judgment. And here's a list of some of those judgments that they were under. In the book of Judges, for example, there were numerous oppressors. I mean, half a dozen. I didn't want to name them all. The big four, of course, was Babylon, Persia, the Macedonians, better known as Alexander the Great, and the Roman Empire. And then, of course, the Great Scattering in 70 CE. So let's, uh, let's look at this real careful. And you can see this is the Babylonian Empire. And there's Jerusalem right there, smack dab in the middle of her borders. Persian Empire, same thing. Did I push, uh, push the button? No, I didn't. There we go. Persian Empire. This is the Macedonian Empire. Isn't that Israel right there? Yeah. And then finally, there we go, the Roman Empire. Right there. And this brings us right to Jesus' time. The interesting part about that is that... Um, Jesus was speaking to the, uh, to the Israelites, and he was telling them about how the truth could set them free. And one of the interesting things that this fellow, uh, this fellow that responded to them said blew my mind. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Now, you see clearly that they had gotten so comfortable being under captivity that it became the norm. And they didn't see any difference between free or enslaved. 
To them, it was all status quo. And then, of course, we see that Jesus came. And um, there's a couple of different... uh, Everybody has a different image of who and what Jesus is. So we have a couple of them, just to see where you land. Did I push the button? All right, there's the cool Jesus. There's the tough Jesus. There's the girly Jesus. We have a nerdy Jesus. The bleeding heart Jesus, in case you uh, really feel for the poor. And then we have the real Jesus. And the real Jesus tried to make an impact in his community, tried to make them understand exactly what they were talking about when when, um, when, um, when they were trying to fulfill the law. And what he did was he clarified the statement. And if you remember back in Deuteronomy, it says uh, that the, the greatest commandment is that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind. As it says here in Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the greatest in the law? Now, the interesting thing is, I want to set this up a little bit. This guy uh, who asked this question was a scribe. Now, what a scribe did all day long is he uh, sat in a room and he copied the law. He copied it perfectly. So if anybody ever had a question about what was in the law, they went to a scribe because they had been copying it for decades and would remember exactly where the passage was that applied to that particular situation. And so... um, These guys were often very much like lawyers. And I have to say I hate lawyers. My apologies to the lawyers in the room. And the reason why I don't like lawyers is because lawyers are trained to continue to ask questions until they find the gotcha moment. And so we see this scribe trying to trick Jesus into giving us the gotcha moment. And so, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of the heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And then Jesus, knowing that the Jews never really got this right, said, and this is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. And this is one of the reasons why I land on the Old Testament as being what they're talking about when they say the oracles of God. Because Jesus clarified that statement by saying, on these two commandments, the whole law and the whole prophets, in other words, the whole Old Testament, hangs. You can, if you fulfill these two laws, you fulfill all the rest. And so, the lawyer thought he found his gotcha moment when he obviously ask the next question, ah, but who is my neighbor? Now pay attention to that because we're going to come back to it. What do you think Jesus meant by adding this clarification? You have any idea? Exactly. 
Absolutely. Loving God equals loving people. Now let's look at how that worked out for them. Now, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, however, there shall be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance to possess. So he's saying that if you obey the law, there won't be any poor among you. Why is that? Probably because they were generous to the poor. Verse 5, if you only... If only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord, your God, to observe carefully all the commandments which I am commanding you today, for the Lord your God shall bless you as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will will not borrow, and you will rule over many nations, but you will not uh, be ruled over. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers... In any of your towns, in your lands, which the Lord your God has given to you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hands from your poor brother. It's extremely important that we understand this. Let me go back a minute and elaborate on this a little bit. Would you be very surprised if I told you one of the main reasons why the Jews went into the Babylonian captivity is because they didn't love one another. The standard answer is, oh, they were, they were not loving God. That's true. They were not loving God. But the evidence of loving God is loving one another. So here's that gotcha moment when Jesus got the lawyer. And he told them about the Good Samaritan. And you all have heard the story. I didn't want to read the whole thing. But there were this poor fellow who fell among thieves. And there were three people that walked by. There was a a rabbi and there was a scribe. And then there was this Samaritan. And he was the guy who helped him out. He not only got him out of the ditch and and, and dressed his wounds, but carried him to the next town, cared for him all night, and then told the innkeeper, whatever this man needs, give it to him and I'll repay you. Pretty impressive. This is what love looks like. And Jesus didn't say, this is your neighbor. What he asked the the lawyer then was, who was neighbor to this man who fell among thieves? So let's go back to Israel for a minute. Think about the history of Israel. Was God foremost in their minds? Did they care for the poor? Did they rule in peace over the land? Did they forgive others their debts? Were they just to one another? They did what was right in their own sight. We saw that in Judges. That's the theme of the whole book. They took advantage of the poor and the foreigners. They forgot the oracles of God completely. At one point in time, one king found the Bible hidden in one of the chambers in the castle and said, hey, I ought to read this book. They never uh, fulfilled the year of Jubilee. And uh, they did not love one another in, any, in, in many respects. So Jesus tells us now that He's grafted us into his garden. And he now has put upon us the oracles of God. 
And so what does Jesus say about this? John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. And so he hasn't forgotten Israel. Don't read that into this. But he's also grafted in us and given to us the oracles of God. Now, if the apple of his eye, the love of his life, the nation of Israel got disciplined because they disobeyed the, the, the commandments of God, how much more so do you think God will discipline us, the church, if we fail to do the very same thing? Look as it continues further on in the same chapter. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Think about the power in that statement. Now, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I don't want everybody to bow their heads and ask for a Jaguar and expect it to be in their driveway tomorrow. I don't want anybody to say I want a big fat bank account and all of a sudden overnight there's a funds transfer of $10 million into your account. That's not what he's talking about. But you can ask for some pretty powerful things. Why don't we ask for justice? Why don't we ask for fairness? Why don't we ask for the capacity to love our neighbors just like we would love ourselves? By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as your Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now we're going to dig a little deeper into this uh, love thing in a few minutes. But I want you... um, to look at how we've been doing so far in the church. How has the church been doing the past 200 years? Not much better than Israel, do you think? How have we done since the Protestant Reformation? And our buddy Martin Luther nailed those uh, objections onto the church doorpost. Let's get a little closer to home. How are we doing in the 795 corridor? here in New Hope, and even in our families. This love thing is very important. And now the oracles of God abide with us. How well are we going to do? So let's talk about these oracles of God as they apply to the New Testament, as they apply to the church. In Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of our heart. It's not good enough that you do what's right. You've got to have the right motives as well. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to have a two-edged sword. Formable weapon, don't you think? Looks pretty mean. Medieval knights liked it. The Romans liked it. But what's the big advantage? Is it cuts both ways. Right? Edge number one. You can kill this way. You can kill that way. 
But remember what, the, what it said in Deuteronomy? Blessings and cursings. This is pulling that thought back. The word of God cuts both ways. Obey it and you're blessed. Disobey it, you're cursed. So, in short, a double-edged blade equals good. So what does it mean to love one another? And there's a couple of uh, Christian books I've read, a couple of commentaries I've read, and there's a whole bunch of different narratives. The two most popular I see is consider others greater than yourselves. And that's not right in my opinion. I don't think God wants us to debase ourselves in order to elevate someone else. Uh, Consider others equal to yourselves. Well, that seems to be closer to the egalitarian look that, you know, the modern church wants to display. But I want us to go back to our basis nature. What do you do for yourself? And it is natural to act in our own self-interest. No matter what people do, no matter how they justify it, ultimately they're acting in their own best interest. They take that promotion because it means more money. They do this or that because it's going to give them an advantage in some way, shape, or form. So that is how we love one another as we love ourselves. Now, I understand there are people that do a lot of self-destructive behavior. I know uh, of a girl that suffered uh, terribly where she would mutilate herself. She'd cut her arm. Uh, I know people that do self-destructive behavior like uh, drive recklessly. Um, I know people that do this, but they're not doing it out of self-love. They're doing it out of self-loathing. So we have to remember that we want this behavior to be, what do you do for yourself? So that we need to act towards one another in a manner that is in their best interest. And this is basically being the Good Samaritan. Because what would you want to have happen to you if you fell among thieves and ended up in the gutter? You would want somebody to first get you out of the gutter and then dress your wounds, take you to some place where you're going to be safe and make sure that you were provided for. And this is what it looks like to love in the Christian church. So I'm going to tell you a true story. I want you to look up here for a minute. Pay attention to me. I want you to listen to the story. But because it's a true story, I don't want you to try to figure out who I'm talking about. I don't want you to try and guess who was this person that had this problem. Listen to the story to get the point of what I'm trying to get across. And this true story is about gambling. I got a call about a year ago from a woman, and this woman told me that her husband was doing online poker and had wiped out the family bank account, overdrew it, as a matter of fact. And she asked me if I would talk to the man. And I told her, yeah, I will talk to him if he calls me, because I didn't want my credibility to be damaged with him that his wife could go off and tattle to me and I would come along and scold him. That's not what it was about. But I told him, I'll pray for you and I'll pray for him and I want you to tell him, here's my phone number, have him call me. And I never got a phone call. And then I hear later, 
that he had gone on vacation and there was gambling where that vacation was and he had uh, lost all the money they had taken on vacation and he had to call his father in order to buy a plane ticket to get back home. And about a week later, he gave me a call. And we were talking on the phone about what had happened and why he was doing this. And the sad part about it was is that he told me that he had a gambling problem and that gambling to him was extremely exciting and that he thought he had it under control. But then there was a group of men from New Hope who did a gambling uh, poker night, and it got him excited about gambling again. And he was no more than a, a day or two after that poker game doing online poker, out of control. Now, don't try and figure out who this fellow was. But I want to ask you something. Did we love this man? Did we? Did we care about him enough? In John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Nobody cares if we've got the right doctrine when they walk into this door to visit. Nobody cares if we all wear a tie or a jacket or we dress casually. Nobody cares that we're in a very old building and it looks beautiful and it has a lot of character. But everybody who walks in that door is going to care whether we love one another. And this is really what it's all about. And we've got to get this right. So I'm not trying to beat us up. We're going to bring this around full circle. Hang in there for a minute. Be patient with me because I know it's hard to hear these kind of things. If you want to make an impact for God in our church and in our communities, we need to get this right. Because when others look in and see how we care about one another, this is how they're going to judge us. If we cannot care for one another, how can we care for the stranger who walks in the door? What we should have done is applied the principles of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Turn there with me, please. We're going to look at this real careful. Turn in your Bibles, Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7. Now, this is the story about meat sacrificed to idols. It's a complicated story. We're not going to understand it all today. We don't have time. But I want you to get the gist of what Paul is trying to communicate to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. However... Not all men have this knowledge. And this knowledge is the understanding that meat sacrificed to idols is not going to condemn you before God and it's not going to uh, lift you up before God if you abstain from it. And that's true with gambling. It's true with any other vice you can think of. You are not sinning if you gamble, if you have it under control. If you can take $200 and put it in your back pocket and go up to Atlantic City and sit down at the blackjack table, and when that $200 is gone, you can get up and walk away, you've got it under control. But if you're the kind of guy who's going to say, man, I just lost those $200. If only I had $200 more, I could get it back. And they go off to the ATM machine and zap out $200 more. And they continue to do that and continue to do that because they're chasing good money after bad. That's what it's talking about. Gambling's the same way as meat sacrificed to idols. Bring it into the modern time. We don't sacrifice meat to idols. 
unless you want to count what I feed my wife. Because my wife likes her steak burnt. And I say that she is my goddess because she gets burnt offerings. <laughs> but other than those few occasions when I offer meat to my goddess, um, we don't do burnt offerings anymore in the Christian church. So, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not condemn us to God. We are neither the worst if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone sees you who, having knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not, be, uh, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So if he sees you eating meat in the, in the temple restaurant, he's going to say it must be an okay thing to go ahead and eat meat in the temple restaurant. But you know what else was going on in the temple? This was a temple to Diana. This was a temple to the, the goddess of love. There were temple prostitutes also in there. And if you're eating meat in the restaurant and you have a nice 12-ounce steak, medium rare, and you have a, a nice glass of wine and you're feeling pretty good, this weaker brother might be tempted, if he's weak in the flesh, might be tempted to move on to the prostitutes and have sexual intercourse with one of these prostitutes. So this is what Paul was having to deal with in the first century. Thank God we don't have restaurants with, with bordellos attached. Otherwise, we'd have to deal with that. For if someone sees you, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died, and thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brothers to stumble. And believe me, that this verse pricks my soul because I love meat. I am a carnivore. You put vegetables in front of me, and I'll turn my nose up to them. You put a steak in front of me, and I'll munch it down real fast. And so giving up something that you really like and enjoy and gives you pleasure is sometimes difficult to do. But I want to make you understand one other thing that this chapter isn't talking about, that this passage is not talking about. It is not talking about the party pooper. It's not talking about the guy who really doesn't have a genuine weakness. He just has a problem with the fact that you like to eat meat. And he thinks that everybody should have no fun. And so he wants to rein in on your parade and ruin things for you. That's not who it's talking about. In fact, later on in this passage, it tells you if that's his attitude, you should eat meat in front of him in spite of himself. All right? But when it comes to the weaker brother, we should rewrite that script for us. Therefore, if gambling causes my brother to stumble, I will never gamble again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. So, should we take this love thing seriously? Think about this for a minute. 
the passages of Scripture. I'm just going to read them off to you. There's only five from the New Testament that talk about this uh, that I have here, but there's dozens more. But this is just the flavor of what Paul and Peter and John and other uh, writers in, in the New Testament have said about this in addition to, to Jesus Christ. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. John, uh, 1 John 4.12 No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And Romans 13.10 Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Back to our theme. So, what is the big takeaway? Love God, love people. They're equal. You can't do one without the other. You can't love people and not love God. You can't love God and not love people. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And if the circumcised had followed these two simple commandments, the discipline that they had to undergo would not have happened. And we have to be thankful to them that they underwent that as an example to us, the church, so that we don't follow in the same footsteps. So, we don't have a closing hymn today. So instead of a, uh, uh, Joe and, and, and the group coming up to sing, I would thought we would read together 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 13. If you all turn there with me, please. Now, we always hear these, uh, uh, this uh, said at a uh, wedding. Last weekend, I went to my nephew's wedding, and they, this was the, the, the New Testament reading for their wedding. And... Um, and it was a pretty beautiful ceremony, to be honest with you. It was a Lutheran ceremony, and, and um, uh, Robert and his, and his bride uh, uh, really uh, enjoyed listening to this. But it doesn't really apply to weddings as much as it does apply to our day-to-day living amongst each other. So let's uh, read together. If everybody wants to stand up. Starting in verse 4, altogether, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I come, I speak as a child. 
think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is love. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, you said if we abide in you, that we can ask anything whatsoever, and it will be gone for us. My prayer today, Lord, is that you would send your Holy Spirit and fill each and every one of our hearts in such a manner that we could learn to love one another in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.